Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll talk about the task of apologetics, defending the faith, and whether there might be more to it than just sanctified debating. We'll also look at the classic text on apologetics in 1 Peter 3, and try to identify important aspects of real apologetics based on what the Apostle actually says. If you've ever wondered how to use your own unique gifts to offer a gracious apologetic without getting defensive, we hope this conversation will spark some ideas. Pastor Mark, I've been reading a book lately, and it's got me thinking about the topic of apologetics. This book is by a Dort University professor named Justin Bailey, and the book is called Reimagining Apologetics. So I've taken some apologetics courses in the past. I've even taught one a couple times. But this book is taking a slightly different approach to apologetics, and I thought we could maybe just toss around some of the ideas. First off, though, just in general, what's been your experience with apologetics as a practice or as a topic? Well, I'm kind of in the same boat as you in the sense that, you know, I've read a lot of books about apologetics. I've taken classes on apologetics. I've taught apologetics. I've even tried to do apologetics, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and at the same time, uh, the last thing in the world I would claim for myself is that I'm an apologetics guy. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a, let's say, non-native speaker of apologetics. And and that can be helpful as a teacher because something that doesn't come naturally to you, you kind of have to to come to terms with and it can help you teach. But I actually had to teach a class on apologetics uh, to teenagers. And ordinarily, for example, you know, at Worldview Academy, they don't let me teach apologetics because they've got apologetics guys to do that. Mm-hmm. But I had to teach this course and just kind of feeling out of my depth. I happen to be at uh, Cairn University and there's an apologist there, Keith Plummer, who's on faculty. And I basically was like, Keith, guide me and and, and recommend a book to me. So uh, the book he recommended was Apologetics at the Cross, which is a kind of a, almost like a textbook on apologetics that gives you sort of lots of theory, lots of practice, lots of philosophy, a lot of, a lot of analysis of our climate and culture and that sort of thing. And I, I devoured it and thought it was wonderful. And as a result, like you, I, I've kind of got a lot of, let's say, apologetics thoughts mm-hmm. jumping around in my mind, uh, not entirely coherent and formulated, but something I'm, I'm really fascinated by maybe because, you know, I'm more and more convinced that what we usually mean by the word apologetics isn't really what apologetics is about. Okay, so you're gonna have to say more about that. But first, I'm curious, what you see to be the relationship between worldview thinking or the the teaching that you do at, say, Worldview Academy, and apologetics, they seem related, but you're saying they're not exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. You know, apologetics is part of like the classical theological curriculum. Uh, defending the faith is is one of those topics that, you know, in a seminary curriculum, you're always going to run into. Worldview came later and is 
I would say like to me a fascinating topic, but it's not quite on the like the top level in the way that apologetics is. It it kind of there's there's relationships between them. In fact, um, David Noggle's book Worldview: History of a Concept was assigned to me in an apologetics class. So I think there's a lot of let's say uh, a cross pollination, but. I always think of worldview as more of a philosophical topic, like like thinking about the world mm-hmm. and it resources all of these other categories, whether it's uh, apologetics or on the other end of the spectrum, like cultural contribution and creativity. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, the original apologists, Christian apologists were martyrs. They weren't just sitting around talking about ideas. Right. So right. their lives are on the line. Well, you said earlier that you think sometimes the way we use the word apologetics maybe isn't helpful or you've got some questions with it. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Like usually if I say we're going to do apologetics, what you think I mean is we're going to do some sanctified debate. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to talk about arguments. We'll probably study logic and then we'll look at, you know, how to prove the existence of God how to respond to questions about the problem of evil, things like that. And all of that is useful. But if you actually go back to the Bible, if you go back to 1 Peter 3, to the classic text on apologetics and defending the faith, I think there's almost no point of contact between what Peter says and what we mean today when we talk about apologetics proper. You know, if you if you look at that, First Peter three, uh, take the whole paragraph. So verses thirteen through seventeen. Here's what Peter writes. He says, "Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy." always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So when you look at Peter's words, you can see like the context very clearly is you're living the Christian life faithfully. You're zealous for righteousness, for good works. And in an ideal world, you would have nothing to fear, but we live in a fallen world. And so you may still be punished and sanctioned for your attempt to live righteously. And if you are, Peter's advice is basically, we'll keep doing it anyway, because it's a blessing to suffer for the sake of good. But also, you should be ready to make this defense, to give this rationale. But specifically, it is a rationale for the reason for the hope that is in you. So it's it's a gospel thing that he's talking about here. He's not talking about being ready to, to do philosophy at the drop of a hat, but specifically to, let's say, like clarify the claims of the gospel and explain why you have this hope in Christ. That's what you're meant to be defending, is, is the hope that you have. And then he talks about how we do it. You know, We do it in gentleness, with respect, with a good conscience. He says, so that when you're slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. When that suggests you don't fight fire with fire, you don't say, oh, well, you know, they're being ruthless, so we've got to be more ruthless. Mm -hmm. He's expecting that you will endure suffering without returning evil for evil, that you will give your defense, but do it like in hope, Hmm. you know, without the anger and the pessimism that usually come with these kinds of of arguments. Yeah, I like that. It actually gets back to the the book that I began with. So Dr. Bailey in this book, he calls his approach an apologetics of hope. And let's see if I can sort of summarize what he's up to in the book for readers. I would I would recommend they go check it out. But he's he's observing that apologetics, as we've understood it, has been focused on the intellect for a long time. So this kind of sanctified debate, like you said. And that that doesn't get the whole picture. And part of what he wants to do is draw our attention back to the imagination. And he thinks that the imagination is, well, it's it's a faculty, but it's it's a faculty that enables us to have this deeper sense of hope, which is rooted in the gospel. So imagination is kindled and got at not just through debate but through narratives stories beauty and so he's he's drawing in some novelists and artists and is trying to trying to show how those those different means of kind of doing apologetics can can show the hope that we have like like peter's saying here I love that emphasis on creativity as a way of doing apologetics because, you know, one of the shortcomings of the narrow view of apologetics we have is that it is so focused on the analytical. And one of the downsides to that for people who are laboring in like our age is that a lot of the people that you are trying to defend the faith with like they don't have the same let's say uh commitment to rationality that a a modernist atheist had and so going at them through those analytical means oftentimes you find yourself like making arguments that the other person is willing to wholly concede but it doesn't matter to them anyway mm-hmm pointing out logical inconsistencies only to hear, hey, we're all inconsistent. And and so it seems as if you're winning an argument, but the outcome is not the outcome that, that you were hoping for. And I think it's because we are failing to use all of the faculties, so to speak, mm-hmm. at our disposal to make the case, to make the positive case for the hope that is in us. I don't know about you, but when I think about the the influences that won me, the influences that led me to be where I am now, not a lot of them were like debates. You know, I didn't read a lot of um, sort of rational debating kind of books, you know, settle this question for me. What about this problem or you know, how do I address you know, this evidence mm-hmm. or whatever? A lot of it was through those more creative things, you know, reading like beautiful novels that opened up the world of Christianity to me, reading, ironically, like theology 
and appreciating it not just for its sort of precision, but for the beauty of of what it sketched out, and and even the beauty of what it couldn't sketch out. Yeah, you know what it could only suggest. <laughs> you know, we've talked about this before. That wonderful line of Bavinks that uh, that mystery is the essential element in dogmatics, and I think that mystery speaks more to the creativity and the beauty that we're describing than than the let's say intellectual rigor as mm-hmm. as nice as that is it's not everything there's there's okay. more to making the case than that yeah and you might expect a couple of writers to yes. be to be making such a case <laughs> but i don't think what we're saying is that truth is less important than beauty or goodness i think what we're trying to say is that all three of them serve hope or serve apologetics right and and also that Truth is not just an analytical proposition. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things that I find very encouraging in like Christian aesthetics and when Christians start thinking about what's going on in the arts, um, I think about this, this tradition, Calvin Seerveld and, and uh, Jeremy Bagby talking about the, the fundamental value in the arts of elusiveness or metaphor. And, and what is that all about? Well, you know, they follow a line of thinkers and saying, like, this is art's way of going after truth. Like, it's not just entertainment, right? There's a desire for truth. It's just arrived at through different means than, like, the scientific method. Yeah, and it's not even just beauty, I think, right? No, it's, no. I mean, it's it's not merely a question of beauty. Right. I mean, there, there's a sense of almost the, the combination mm-hmm. Of, of truth and beauty in the way that you approach it. I think, for example, of uh, the music of Bach. So Bach is a composer who seems to believe that through the practice of his vocation, he's doing, let's say, uh, musical theology. You know, it's not just that he's trying to entertain you with his technique. He's trying to like discover impenetrable and inexpressible truths through a medium that that is the only way to get at them this this combination of like music and mathematics let's say that's mm-hmm. opening up an aspect of reality that's hard to perceive by other means and i think that's where um, a lot of this talk of imagination can fall in deaf ears if you don't understand that the imagination is another faculty for knowing truth right and that the the pursuit of beauty and the perception of beauty is is connected to truth Mm -hmm. uh, just as it's connected to goodness yeah he gives the example in the book as well of c.s lewis a very popular figure and he says perhaps one of the reasons lewis has been so popular is the way that he he worked in both the intellect and the imagination. So obviously in, in books like Mere Christianity or, or his other more, more theological or philosophical works, he's, he's making rational, logical arguments for the truth of Christianity, which are also be- beautiful, you know, and he's dealing with moral truths as well. But then he, there's this whole other side of Lewis, the novelist, who's writing not just stories, but children's stories. And, and I have actually found both of those sides, if you'll, if you will, of Lewis to be equally as important in my relationship with him. 
Uh, sometimes I need to read Mere Christianity again. Other times I just need to sit down and, and read The Silver Chair and be reminded of something in that story form that I just couldn't get at. Or maybe even Lewis couldn't express himself except through a story. Yeah, let, let's switch mediums and, and talk just a little bit about the apologetic value of architecture. Okay. Uh, because I think it, it, it might help, you know, to come out at left field to kind of get at what we're saying. Um, there's a sense in which the form of a building can testify to what happens inside, right? And you see like an old fashioned church building with the steeple and everything. And you're like, I know what happens there. I know what this building is for, even if as in uh, our town, you may see a church building that's now a tattoo parlor. <laughs> yeah. You look at the form of the building and you know that this was a place that, that testified to the Christian gospel. Like just in its form, it proclaims that. And that's not something we're, we're often conscious of, right? That in the, the sort of, certainly in the, let's say, pragmatic evangelical vein these days, you build big boxes, you know, you build things just to sort of fit the most square footage in. And you just don't think about the visual proclamation aspect of things. And yet these forms have had apologetic impact. You know, there's the, the story of the Vikings traveling to Constantinople and then converting en masse to Christianity when they see the city and they enter the Hagia Sophia and they're just transported. Like this church hmm. is like, being in heaven and this must be true. And I think that way of getting at the truth, it's not an argument, it's not uh, rhetoric, but it is making a case and it's creating a world that you can walk into as someone who doesn't already believe and try it on, so to speak, whether it's walking into the church building and being surrounded by those elements or walking into the novel or walking into the song and being surrounded by this Christian ethos. And for a moment, you're in it. You're kind of feeling what it is to believe these things. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a great apologetic value to work like that, that we often neglect. I mean, the reality is almost no one reads the early church apologists. Almost no one reads medieval apologetics. No one is reading uh, most apologetics books except for other apologists. But these other efforts at proclamation do have a wider impact. And so I think it would be helpful for us to understand the way that using all of our gifts for the glory of God can be doing apologetics. I have to tell you a story about an apologetics class I took at Westminster Seminary. This was a, an apologetics class on uh, Vantillian presuppositionalism, which is probably one of the most, let's say, uh, pointy-headed and philosophical brands of apologetics. And there was a guy with a shaved head who always sat on the front row he was a motorcycle cop who was doing seminary part-time at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he was sitting in on this class. 
And every time the professor paused to take a breath between one of his elaborate sort of philosophical expositions on, on some aspect of Ventilian thought, this guy would raise his hand and when called upon would say, okay, now how would I use this on an atheist? Mm-hmm. And I always used to laugh at that because I thought, you know, here's a guy who doesn't know where he is. You know, he thinks he's in the dojo, the martial arts classroom, and he's going to be taught all these these tactics to use in his sort of, you know, rhetorical fights with atheists. But he's actually in something more like the academy, you know, where Plato is lecturing to his students about you know, the, the way the world should be, you know, metaphysics and that sort of thing. And so it always struck me as really funny as if you know, someone were raising their hand and asking Plato, now how would I use this on a sophist, you yeah. know, or something <laughs> like that. But it strikes me, though, that it's not a simple, like, either-or dualism. Like, it, it's not a question of should we do apologetics in the dojo or should we do apologetics in the academy, that there's a sense in which, as helpful as those things can be, both of them are the wrong place to be, and that there's a third place which I'm going to call like apologetics at the cross. And that's the location we really want to be hmm. for apologetics. In my experience teaching a couple apologetics classes, I had similar experiences with students who on the one hand were satisfied with big questions and fancy answers, or on the other hand, who just wanted to get into the ring and, right. and were like, you know, how do I, how do I use this? And and I agree that both they seemed good in their place, but I, I like this idea of bringing it back to the cross. I think it points us back to the passage that you started with, right? That that really it's it's about honoring Christ as holy, like Peter says, um, holding fast to what is good. And and I think it's fascinating because what it means is like you just hinted at anyone can do apologetics. Um, all of us in our various callings and gifts can, right. can do apologetics in this way. Yeah. And, and it's about hope too. Yeah. I, I mean, that hope is what it's all about. I think, you know, if, if we're doing apologetics in the dojo, the question we're always asking is, you know, like, how do I do this? You know, how do I do it? How do I do it? And if we're doing apologetics in the academy, we're always asking like, what is this? You know, always going back to kind of the definition and, yeah. and understanding the concept more. And if you think about it, really, from Peter's point of view, the concept, the question like, what is it, is, is already given, right? We already see that the whole point of this is just to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And, and that's not a difficult, abstract, philosophical thing. Like, the gospel is the answer to that, like articulating mm-hmm. the gospel hope of resurrection in Christ. You know, the, these are are pretty available answers for anyone familiar with the Christian gospel. So there's not a lot of room there for philosophizing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, the the how do I do it question, which seems to be all that's left, right? If, if we already know what apologetics is, then I guess the question is just how do we do it? That too isn't really answered in Peter because Peter really puts things like that in the hands of God. Right, that he is saying, you know, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 
And so in his mind, the outcome is in God's hands, not in yours. He's not saying, you know, be ready to have an answer and make sure it's a good one. Otherwise, you'll get the wrong result and you'll lose the argument. In his own biography, you know, we can see that Peter is a, is a man whose effectiveness depends entirely on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You know, Peter before the Spirit and Peter after the Spirit, completely different. And so there's no way that Peter is going to say to you, you know, study the techniques and apply them wisely. You know, he understands you're depending on the Spirit here. But if we already know what apologetics is, it's not a mystery. And we're not needing to be so focused on how to do it exactly right because we're leaning on God and the Spirit's effectual work through even the wrong means, mm-hmm. then what is left to us to do in apologetics? And and the thing that that Peter focuses on is, as you say, honoring Christ. Like in your heart, honor him as holy. And I think the implication is in your actions and in your words, do the same thing. And so what you're trying to do in apologetics ultimately is to honor Christ as holy, to clarify and explain the gospel, to uh, refute misunderstandings of the gospel, to make sure that it's clear what it is that the, the Bible actually teaches and why that gives you hope. And you can make it much more complex than that you can bring a lot more gifting and ability to it than that. But at its core, I think that's really all it is. And it is something that each of us is already equipped to do. If you have hope in Christ, then honestly, the main thing is the readiness. You know, as Shakespeare would say, the readiness is all, mm-hmm. you know, being ready to enter into that conversation, whether you get the wording right or not, whether you understand or not what it is that you're doing, just being ready to speak up for your reason for hope is being an apologist. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks, Cameron, for joining me on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.